0: This week on the Back Table Podcast, the first case that I actually ever did with this was a case where it seemed almost as if his body was then responding to the resuscitation. Then we did the embo, and we even saw a more significant jumps. So he was prior to doing the embo, he was having drops where he was going back down, going back down. We need to give more support. And when I spoke to anesthesia afterwards, they were like that minute to minute feedback, that interaction that we had collectively was so crucial to us having a better outcome during the case. And I genuinely feel like after that case, I was like, I'm always going to use the sheath in a trauma.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular you can find all previous episodes of our podcast on itunes spotify and on backtable.com now a brief message from our sponsor today's backtable podcast is sponsored by Endofis technologies pressure sense their flagship device is the first major innovation in blood pressure monitoring in 50 years what sets it apart intelligent sheath technology it delivers immediate blood pressures powered by fiber optics for the fastest, most accurate detection of critical chemodynamic events. And it gives you full lumen access for your interventional tools. Best of all, you can begin your procedure immediately. No need to wait for anesthesiology to place an art line. Tested and approved since 2016, a single device for arterial access and blood pressure data. Faster than a radial art line, more reliable than a transducer, more accurate than a cuff, pressure sense, Visit endophys.com. That's E N D O P H Y S.com for more. Now, back to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. Got another special show lined up today. We've got Rehan Quadri, who's been on the show before with Baratza. That was episode 289 discussing clot in transit, including some interesting case discussions around that. Please check that out. Today, we're going to be switching gears a bit. We're going to talk about intra-procedural arterial monitoring and when it's important, why it's important, and some new tools that can be used that are out on the market. Uh, Rehan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Just as we typically start out,
0: tell our audience, who those who maybe didn't catch the where you're at and what your practice looks like. I practice at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. We're an academic practice, we cover a community hospital at Parkland, then we cover an academic center at Clements, and then we have a few smaller sites, and then we also have Children's Dallas in our practice, and we're about 14, 15 people total, we have APPs, and then we have a full residency program. Okay, awesome. Are you guys hiring? Oh yeah, for sure. Always, I feel like everybody's always hiring. There's a lot of flux.
1: Yeah, there seems to be. I mean, as the audience knows, I've been practicing in Dallas for the last 10 years or so, and always great to interact with the UT Southwestern crew, and I got to meet you at least a year ago now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, but yeah, great content on the prior episode. I'm I'm excited to talk about what we wanted to talk about today, which you actually came to me uh, with the idea was this whole concept of intraarterial blood pressure monitoring during, especially like, I don't want to call them high-end cases, but emergency cases really where blood pressure monitoring is essential and you're not just relying on the arm cuff or the leg cuff, especially in the cases of like GI bleeds, traumas, we'll get into all that, what kinds of cases you're using these for. But can you give us an overview of like,
0: let us know like how and when this became important and how it got introduced to you. So originally Phil Purdy, I guess, who sort of developed the technology was one of the attendings at UT Southwestern in interventional radiology. That's right. They acquired the technology for stroke and basically for like their door to intervention time so that they could eliminate whatever steps between them. So art line rather than placing one, having a dual sheath system where they could monitor blood pressure through the single access that they had like instantaneously. And I found that, you know, because we're a training program, we have fellows and residents on both sides, like anesthesia, us, trauma. The first use I had for it was there was a trauma case where the person had like upper extremity fractures and the radial arteries were trashed. We needed to use the groin for access. The left groin was also injured in a traumatic setting. So there was limited options. And it was one of the neuro IR attendings who was like, hey, if you ever feel the need, we have this sheath that has a built-in A-line in it. So you can use it. It's six French. You can still use an NGO seal for it. It's very easy to place to zero, and he's like, you're not going to have a lot of issues. And it comes with its own monitoring system, So, and it hooks up to anesthesia setup. So there was a night where there was this person that just had very limited options for accurate arterial monitoring. I mean, I'm sure we could have gotten a line into some artery, but it might not have been usable. And then in addition, we had to actually do the angiogram. So I was like, let's use it. So we called the rep They came in right away. We had everything set up. It took like two seconds. I mean, I would say our procedure time went from being an added time of people fumbling to get an A-line for 30, maybe 30 minutes on the higher end, Mm -hmm. but like usually, you know, like five, 10 minutes to like instantly having the sheath in and having like a very crisp, clean waveform with like much more robust readouts because it was just giving us blood pressures and maps like more frequently than the standard A-line. We didn't have to zero it. We just put it in and we zeroed it, but we never had to adjust. So with the A-lines, the one thing that always frustrated me was like during the case, sometimes in a trauma at a critical point, they might have to re-zero or the pole that the A-line was on, like suddenly became off level with the heart. But with us, we're like constantly in the plane of the table of the patient. So I can just focus, right. get my catheters in and do what I need to do and know that my pressure is what I think it is. Yeah.
1: I just want to back up a minute with, with trauma cases in general. So typically with trauma, obviously the in this case, it sounds like the blood pressure was tenuous, like it was something you wanted to absolutely monitor because yeah. of the guy's internal bleeding. Was it internal or external bleeding?
0: Or He was a multivisceral injury. So he was all, uh, he had spleen, kidney, oh, gosh. retroperitoneum, and then uh, he had several extremity fractures, but only one. I think it was the left lower extremity that had extrav oh wow okay and so you're going after multiple things it sounds like yeah it was going to be a long ordeal so we really needed to know that he was doing well yeah and and it sounds like he was probably already intimated yes. yeah upon yeah arrival he was a, okay it was an mpc so he was walking yeah. i think they were walking somewhere in the park like somewhere around the streets of parkland they got hit by a car Wow. Yeah. he was close
1: to Parkland. Right? Yeah. He's pretty lucky. That's wild. And so obviously because he was already intubated, anesthesia was automatically involved with that case, right? Yes. Yeah. But is that always the case in traumas? Because sometimes we get traumas and they're, they're just moderate sedation because anesthesia doesn't necessarily, there's no time, right? Like if it's just like a splenic trauma or a kidney or even like a post-intervention kidney trauma. Like how do traumas typically present with anesthesia involvement or is it kind of 50-50 or... Almost always with anesthesia involvement
0: at Parkland. Okay. Usually, usually like it is the ones that are not anesthesia involvement will be the spleens. Yeah. Because we generally will do those when they're stable. Right. But now actually even the trauma guidelines and our practice is shifting towards doing splenic embos in people that are borderline stable because... We just have such good resources and IR that we can handle that. Yeah. And so instead of them rushing to the OR, we can do more splenic preservation and do proximal embos and distal embos. And and this sheath really helps with that because sometimes our nurses will say, well, I don't know how comfortable I feel. Right. And, you know, the cuffs slide off. Things happen with cuffs. Cuffs can be inaccurate. They only give you so many measurements. When we put this sheath in, we still have, because it comes with its own full readout system... Yeah, the nurse and myself can just keep looking at it the whole time, and even have a more accurate system just for us, whether anesthesia is involved or not. That was my other question because when
1: when you and I first talked about it, you mentioned also its utility in like GI bleeds, for example. Again, anesthesia is not always involved unless it's like an upper GI bleed or something like that. They're really unstable, maybe coming straight from endoscopy. But a lot of times, the GI bleeds. They might not be something that's uh, lower GI bleed and you're just doing under moderate sedation. So that was my other
0: question is, is this something that you're using when anesthesia is not involved? Yeah, I do. Now I do, especially when you get the GI bleed consult and there's any suspicion that the stability has waffled at points, you know, oh, they were hypotensive, but it was really brief or, oh, they were tachycardic, but it was brief. Then I can know for sure that my blood pressure is accurate during the procedure. Yeah, so these are typically
1: cases where you would have an art line, but this is just easier
0: and it, there's there's less delay, right? That's what it sounds like. It's one of the big advantages. That and also there are a lot of cases where during the procedure I would like arterial monitoring, but I don't want the patient to go to an ICU afterwards. I just want it for intra-procedural purposes. Yeah. And I don't have to do a second stick, and I think that's what's really been a good benefit of the device that I never appreciated until I started using Mm. it. That there were cases where, like, I'm like, oh, now that I have this, I have so much more confidence in what I'm giving in terms of my versed, my fentanyl, you know, unmedications that are being given during the procedure. There's a lot of times where, you know, at Parkland, all of these monitoring devices that are non-invasive, they have glips errors things where suddenly the the respiratory cuff falls. I mean, the the blood pressure cuff slides off, the pulse ox monitor slips off. But with this, it's like, I have no doubt that my pressure is what my pressure is the whole case. Yeah. I mean, it would be amazing to have it during
1: a renal biopsy, for example, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, because, like, I mean, the blood pressure cuffs are just maddening, especially a lot of people, as I know, in Texas are overweight, so it's cuff sizing has to do with it. Yeah. And there's amputees, so you don't know if is a calf going to work, is a, their arms are so big you can't get a good reading on them. So it sounds like the cases that benefit most in your experience have been the trauma, the GI bleed. The original idea was came from stroke, right? Mm-hmm. Anything else that you've you
0: are cardiologists using it for like MIs and stuff? I work closely with some other cardiologists and and I brought it up and I'm not sure if they actually ended up using it or not. I'm assuming that some potentially do and some don't. They yeah. uh, right now a lot of them are going radial and the company's <laughs> radial system hasn't come out, so that might change if they use yeah. it or not. Because from the groin, I think only one or two of them use groin access now in their practice. For the most part, yeah. But for us, really, yeah, it's like the GI bleeds, the traumas, and then there was a few attendings that (laughs) thought about using it during dialysis procedures, actually for fistulograms, because there was some data about people bringing back pressure measurements across stenoses and dialysis to see, you know, do you really need to treat all these lesions and plasty all them, and is the intimal injury worth it? Like, is it causing in the long run maybe more thrombosis later on? So they were like, well, if we put the sheath in. We kind of know what our gradients are constantly, but I was like a bit of an expensive use for a sheath.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that that's a great segue
1: to like, go, tell us a little bit about the sheath itself, like sort of how it works. And then we can talk about, cause it's a new product. New products always tend to be expensive, right? But it sounds like it, where in the cases you've seen it work, it really, it can, it saves time in, in an emergent situation. Therefore we're saving literally lives in the cases that you've experienced it with, right?
0: Yeah. So how the sheath works, it's exactly like a regular sheath. And that's one of the things I like about it so much. I don't really need to change anything about how I place a sheath, what I tell the trainees to do. And I feel very comfortable with a fellow and our fellows, they have a lot of skill that they can just do this even without me in the room, potentially. So it's a standard sheath with a standard introducer and It's a 6 French system, it's 12 centimeters long. There's also a a 6 and an 8 system with different lengths that Neuro uses more frequently than we use, but this is the one that we use in their whole setup. It has a yellow attachment cable that connects to a pressure sensor, so it's a microchip built at the end of the sheath, and then you still have a flush side port available to your use. And that flush side port you can hook up to a, a heparin drip, like a KVO during the procedure. And then the key thing is that after you've gotten your access, you can use any 035 wire to place the sheath. You can even place it over an 025 Mm -hmm. or if you want an 018 wire, but the best would be, it, it is a stiff sheath and it does give you a very stable access. Once you have your 035 wire and when you load it on the wire before you place the sheath in the body, that's the moment that you have to zero. Okay. So you plug the yellow cable in. You can make as much of it as you want sterile, but you have to give up the piece to be unsterile to connect to the actual pressure readout system. So that pressure readout system is custom from endophys, and then it has another fiber optic cable that connects to anesthesia system. So we zero on our end, anesthesia zeros on their end, then the sheath goes into the body. It's almost like set it and forget it. I hate using that phrase from that infomercial back in the day, but that's sort of how it works, and then you just proceed. Yeah. And then like, how does it read?
1: So I know there's like some sort of algorithm to it. Like how often is it pulling and is it, is
0: it creating like a mean, that sort of thing? So my understanding of the technology, so some of it is like, obviously within the company's sort of protected information, but it's a microchip that uses a pressure sensor that detects a pressure every 250 to 500 times a second. And then it smooths out that algorithm and gives you a reading per second. And then those okay. readings can then be further reduced to have a readout for any number of minute intervals that you would standard take. So if anesthesia generally takes a blood pressure every like 15 seconds or something like that, they can readjust the readout to do however many frequencies they want to capture or however many readings they want to capture. And is this considered even
1: more accurate than like a, a radial art line that we typically put in, in the ICU.
0: Yeah. By like just looking at the math and the stats. Yes. I would say there's, it it just collects so much more data Yeah, and it's just so much more continuous. The other advantage is that because the tip of our sheath is in the external iliac, it's, I would argue that it's a better reflector of the central and true central perfusion pressure at that moment than an art line versus a a, uh, peripheral radial artery. A lot of our patients do have PAD. And actually quite a few have upper extremity PAD. So sometimes the radial art line, you you get the access in the arm. You're not even aware this is the first time we're seeing this trauma. They've never been in our system. We know nothing mm-hmm. about them. And then suddenly your reading is not as accurate as what you think it would be. And we've had cases where we had an art line, mm-hmm. we still place the endophys sheath because anesthesia was saying, well, the art line is finicky. The waveform's not great. Um, we're not, yeah. we're not able to flush well. So I'm like, all right, we'll just do the end of We place it in and then we realize that they probably do have an under, and, and one patient was diagnosed with a subplatin artery stenosis eventually, but. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's, it's just great because the external iliac is really not going to give you as hard of a time as an upper extremity vessel
1: yeah, but you said the calibration is required, which everything that we do with pressure
0: measurements tends to require calibration. How is that process, the calibration process fast? Very quick. Yeah. once I'm outside the body, I plug in the yellow cord into the readout monitor, and then from there it zeros. So the one thing I will mention prior to starting the case, the system has to warm up. So that takes a few minutes. but we have the we have like sort of a fluid setup where if it's a trauma, GI bleed, or any critical arterial case where we want monitoring, the techs and nurses know that they plug that thing in right away into the wall before the patient's in the room, before anything's happening, just so the device warms up. And then from our standpoint, the zeroing occurs outside the body, takes a few seconds, sheath goes in. And I have never had to re zero or fuss with anything or adjust the levels or the settings just because of where the position of the sheath is. It's almost always at the right level. And yeah, I we don't really consume a lot of time worrying about is our pressure accurate? Do we need to re-zero the sheath? It's basically from my end, all I have to do is zero and place, and then that's it. Got it. And there's
1: no capital equipment, right? It's just the the sheath itself is disposable, and then the other little monitoring, the piece, the reading piece is something that you guys keep
0: in in house, I imagine. We do, yeah. And it has to connect to that specific readout machine. But from there, you can connect it to pretty much anything. Got it. Okay. So it's just a little readout machine, uh, which I've seen pictures is just like a little
1: box. That's the only thing that is like hardwired that you have to hold on to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Got it. Yeah. Okay.
1: And that connects to any imaging. So you can
0: have the readout on your big monitor. You can. You
1: can have it. Okay.
0: Yeah, and uh, I I think the cable, the fiber optic cable that displays the readout, as far as I know we only have one port. So it, it. It, you can connect it to a system that then connects with multiple, but I don't know if I think they're make they're making new renditions of it, but I'm assuming in the future some mm-hmm. of them might have multiple ports that you could just physically connect to other things. Yeah, cuz I know that he's always is keeping records of
1: of blood pressure, so obviously he wants that that information readily available instead of having to look at the box, right? And same with the nurse. The nurse is charting the whole time, the
0: whole case. Is it integrate with the EMR or anything like that? Do you know? Yeah. It will, once we plug into the, particularly the anesthesia system, it integrates so seamlessly. When we plug into ours, it's the same. It will just give us a readout. The nurse can capture however many pressures they want. And actually, when we were trying to go back and do our data analysis for our study, um, so we're trying to show that the uh, you know time to procedure and time to intervention and time to hemodynamic stability was significantly improved with the device is basically we go into Epic and we have these pressure maps and we still record all the non-invasive cuff pressure maps. So I get these line graphs and bar graphs and we like compare the two and the readouts and I can adjust the data to say, well, I only want the comparison for every 15 seconds or... If the cuff was taken every five minutes, I'm only going to take the readout for every five minutes. So it syncs pretty yeah. well with Epic, I would
1: say. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, very cool. And so, cost is it?
0: It's a new technology, so uh, everybody wants to know what's that look like. So in an academic setting, a lot that one of the luxuries I have is a lot of people say you just do whatever you need to do. But from what I understand, the sheath is around eight hundred dollars a pop, and a whole arterial access with anesthesia can cost anywhere from like three to four hundred dollars potentially more or less depending upon where they need to go afterwards and and any added features the monitoring has but i think with the time you save and with the accuracy of the device it definitely justifies the cost from my perspective and the fact that you know In our system, just being able to know that I can send this patient anywhere after the procedure, I don't necessarily have to get an ICU bed per se if they don't need it, Right, um, makes me feel a lot more comfortable with just using the device. Can you say, because a lot of times the radial art line will stay in the arm
1: going back to the ICU, can you keep the sheath in and then they can continue to monitor with this sheath in the ICU? They can,
0: Yeah. Yeah. They okay. do, I think initially they they prefer to switch back to an art line afterwards if they yeah. wanted to continue the monitoring. But now that they feel comfortable with the system, they, they will frequently just take it back to the floor. And then you just got to get that box back from them later. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get the box. They're yeah. giving us a second one for people to travel with. So we'll have a travel version. Oh, that's great. But yeah, I think getting that. And then once they have the the radio, we're also going to purchase his radial sheath whenever mm-hmm. it comes out. That'll kind of just fix everything. Yeah. The brilliant thing is if they didn't want to use the yellow cable and use the formal chip, the base of it, they can actually just hook the side port up as a regular art line, almost like a yeah. normal readout in their system. So just use the sheath as if it was just a, a line. So this is called Endofiz, right? That's yeah. the name of the sheath? And then the technology okay. for the chip is pressure sense.
1: Pressure sense. Honestly, until I heard about this, I've been in practice even in med school. I don't think things have changed since med school, like Radio Art Line. I remember yeah. getting taught how to put Radio Art Lines yeah, in as yeah, an intern, yeah. and I still see people doing the exact same thing, right, in the last 15 years. So I don't think anything's really changed until recently. So, it was, it, first of all, kudos to Phil Purdy for realizing that this could be like a real lifesaver, but also like, w- you know, is this evolving further? Are there any other companies putting something like this
0: together that you've seen? I don't know. Yeah. This is the only device I've come across. When I was told about this immediately, I was like, this is something we need to use. Yeah. I, just like you, I'd never heard of anything prior to becoming an attending throughout training. And then as an attending, I, I don't know of a company that's also doing a built in monitoring sheet. Yeah. The sheaths are really, I mean, it's really neat stuff coming along. There's another one called early
1: bird, which I think cardiologists use more uh, for like large sheaths. It it, it goes in the, uh, it's a, it's a sheath that goes in the, in the vein, in the femoral vein adjacent to, and it can monitor impedance. So if somebody has a really bad retroperitoneal hematoma that's developing, it picks up on that impedance and alerts you that there's a hematoma. Oh, I see, I see. Which is pretty neat. That can be left in place even after you pull the arterial sheath out, so that you know if they are bleeding to avoid like a life-threatening hematoma. So, really neat stuff going on in the in the sheath world yeah. lately. It seems like you know, yeah, yeah, which makes sense. And so, you mentioned that they have a radial device coming out. You mentioned that the they're working on the warm-up time. Anything else that's on the next iteration of this? Because I imagine that they're
0: this seems like first generation, but it sounds like they're coming out with something new. So they are having smaller sheath sizes, what I was told. So it'd be like a slender system so that if you do want to get the radial access, it's a lot more comfortable about the puncture size and the more accommodating towards a radio artery vessel size. Yeah. And then even the same for ephemeral. So if you wanted to use a smaller puncture size, then you can get that. And then they have different lengths as well. For the stroke guys, it's a bigger deal to have a little bit of a longer system, more so for stability. For us, really, the short sheath has been just fine. I mean, the the yeah. one that they have now is, is probably enough for our purposes.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine if you had like a long destination that went up into the aorta. Yeah, you could get
0: aortic pressures, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I think for any visceral artery stenting, like particularly like SMAs and celiacs, you know, when you're doing like a recan and then, or if it's just a stenosis and you want to know, like there's a couple of patients I've had where they were like, well, do they have mouths or do they have stenosis that's actually Mm -hmm. flow limiting, that's deriving some type of mesenteric angina and they're just not sure. So you go in to treat these lesions and, you know, I always measure pressures across everything and same with renals if this sheath, and, and you can still use this sheath for that function. So I will use this as my baseline measurement. And then whether I use a volcano wire or if I use just a catheter, this sheath is my second number for my yeah. pressure values. Very cool, Ryan.
1: Well, at the beginning of the conversation, you talked about the trauma patient. Any other cases that do you think really nicely illustrates the value of the sheath that uh, you've had come across your
0: plate? Yeah, other than the uh, visceral artery stenting, you know, for stenotic lesions, I would say the main cases are traumas, GI bleeds, and any type of emergent arterial case where we want minute-to-minute monitoring. The first case that I actually ever did with this was a case where it was a patient was an MVC, and they had a splenic injury, and they had a renal injury, and they also had several lumbar injuries. And they had an A-line in, but the A-line was actually reading out like completely normal. And the anesthesiologist was having to re-zero it and it was having a few issues. So then we decided to place the end of his sheath. And immediately the pressure readout was like 60 or 40. And he was like, you know, this pressure matches more what the heart rate is doing than the pressure from my A-line. His A-line was reading out like 110 over 80, which he was like, this doesn't really make any sense. And it looked like his waveform was fine. So that's what was confusing him. And then as soon as we placed the sheath in, he started to give some epi, started to give fluids, and then the heart rate actually changed. And then the patient clinically from all our other parameters was way more stable. Like I could actually notice on the angio that he was considerably less, well, obviously we would given the epi, but once all those effects kind of went off, he was considerably less clamped down. It seemed almost as if his body was then responding to the resuscitation. Then we did the EMBO and we even saw a more significant jumps. So he was prior to doing the EMBO, he was having drops where he was going back down, going back down, we need to give more support. And when I spoke to anesthesia afterwards, they were like, you know, that minute to minute feedback, that interaction that we had collectively was so crucial to us having a better outcome during the case. And I genuinely feel like after that case, I was like, I'm always going to use the sheath in a trauma if I have any questions, because I was just so confident in what I was doing. And then I immediately knew that the EMBO I did resulted in a direct correlation to the sheath measurement. It just changed the blood pressure. And because it's measuring it so frequently, I can get that like immediate feedback and say, is he doing better? And you don't really even have to ask anesthesia per se, because you can just see it. I mean, it's right next to you. Right. So I can just turn yeah. and be like, well, that looks better. And they didn't, <laughs> assuming that they haven't given anything in the meantime, but yeah, you can yeah. clearly tell that they're going in the right direction from whatever you're doing. Right. Well, that's fantastic, right, hun? Any final thoughts before we finish up? No, just really just excited about the product, excited about using it really for our trauma algorithm, but expanding it to other things like GI bleeds and anything where I want to monitor like visceral artery stenting as well and easy to use in a training system, easy to use in a full-fledged private practice. You know, I think cost, obviously you have to figure out if your anesthesia colleagues are on board with it or not and if it works in your system. But I think the most impressive thing is just the support from anesthesia. I thought they would be bothered. Oh, we want to place our lines. We want to do this. But they were sort of like, this is just such a good device that they're okay with doing it. And the time we save in cases is huge. I mean, I would say yeah. with our preliminary, we've done 24 cases now. I would say it's like at least 30 minutes per case, if not more than that. Yeah. It's going to be interesting with,
1: you know, when the radial device comes out, if anesthesia is going to be placing those, and then you don't even have to mess with it necessarily yeah. from the femoral aspect, right? Yeah. Because I imagine it would be the same procedure in terms of placing a radio R-line. Yeah. Well, fantastic, Rayhan. Thank you so much for uh, sharing these cases and sharing your intel on this. Looking forward to um, seeing what's coming next with the radio and maybe a couple of years from now, we'll, we won't even be messing with it. It'll be all, <laughs> it'll be all anesthesia. you know. I know. But I, I do like the idea of, of using it in these, uh, especially mesenteric cases and cases where there's narrowing. Something that has evolved beyond just pulling your catheter across a stenosis, yes, neck, yeah, right? Because, yeah. I mean, those pressures are always kind of hit or miss too, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It seems like half guesswork, but, uh, but they use rayon.
0: Yeah, perfect.
1: Sounds good. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at... At underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWherter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Manisha Naganathanahali. And Manbir Singh Subli. Administrative support provided by Jim Lui Intro and extra music is
1: Riparoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.